Brandon Sanderson is one of my favorite authors. And several years ago, I had read all of his books except for his Mistborn series. Why? Because the Mistborn covers were terrible. The covers made the books look really boring. So boring that me, a fan of the author, wouldn't touch the books. And here's the tragic part. The covers lied. The Mistborn books were amazing. In fact, they were arguably the best Sanderson books to start with for new readers. When I finally gave them a shot after some friends basically forced me to get past the cover, it turned out they were some of my favorite Brandon Sanderson books. So if bad covers can keep me, a super fan, from giving a good book a chance, imagine what they do to strangers. There is a reason Mistborn now has a new cover. In fact, they've redesigned the cover several times because they realized it was such an obstacle to sales. Good covers cause readers to pull the book off the shelf. They cause readers to click to learn more and bad covers undermine all of your other promotional activities. A weak cover makes your emails, ads, and even your bookmarks less effective. It can even undermine your word of mouth. So when it comes to your book, there are two things you never want to skimp on, the cover and the editing. So how do you get a great cover for your book? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And this episode is primarily for indie authors because they have full control over their covers, but it's also for traditional authors who often also have a say in the book's cover. And you'll learn how to make that say a useful say (laughs) in this episode. And to guide us through the dark forest of book cover design, we have a very special guest. He studied traditional illustration in college and spent the first decade of his career as a graphic designer in the publishing industry. He's designed over a thousand book covers for publishers like Enclave Publishing, Barber, HarperCollins, Penguin Group, Simon & Schuster, and many, many others, not to mention many indie authors. Kirk DuPonts, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thanks, Thomas. Happy to be here. So when you started designing book covers in the 90s and early 2000s, the primary format was a 6-inch by 9-inch paper book. And now the primary format for a book cover is a 2-inch by 3-inch thumbnail if you're on a computer and like a a one inch by two inch (laughs) thumbnail if you're on a phone. So how has that changed how a book cover is designed? Yeah, most people are going to see book covers in thumbnail size. So it's very important that at that size, you get the wow factor. So really contrast is so important. Have a dark figure on a light background or the other way around or a color contrast. Ultimately, it's about somebody being intrigued enough to click on that image. A common place where I see that contrast mistake happen is with the typography, where the typography isn't bold enough or it doesn't, it's not a different enough color from the background. Yep. And you can read it when it's six inches by nine inches, but when it's one inch by two inches, the title gets, it's like it's camouflaged into the cover. Yeah, that happens a lot. At least with more with indies. And that's one of the ways that you can tell if it's a budget cover, (laughs) because (laughs) depending on who's designing the cover, they may or may not know how to design for thumbnails. So walk us through your process of designing a book cover. So somebody comes to you or a publisher comes to you and they have a title of a book. 
and maybe some description of the book. What do you do? Take us through the steps from idea to completed cover. You definitely want your book to fit within the genre. So the first thing I'll always do is research. And then if I can, I'll read the book, but that doesn't happen enough. Uh, Publishers don't often have the book available before it comes out because they'll be a year ahead. So it's more about marketing. They may only have a few chapters. And this usually happens with indie authors where the book is available to read, even if it's a very rough manuscript, which is fine. So I do like to read it to immerse myself in the story to get an idea of what's the mood for the cover. From there, there's really a lot of coffee involved. And and I'll ask the author too, if it's an indie, what are covers that speak to you? You know, like you hated the Mistborn covers. So you would tell me what covers you like because I wouldn't want to go in a direction you hated. So yeah, it's about getting an understanding of what the book is really about. And something I always say is that I'm not trying to tell your story on a book. It's more about getting the feeling, the atmosphere, so that when the person in less than a second can look at it and get the feeling, is this going to be a thriller? Is it dark fantasy? Is it whimsical? And I think that's a common mistake that a lot of indie authors make is they want you to tell the whole story on the cover. They want every character Mm -hmm. on the cover. They want every location on the cover. They want every plot point and every symbol. And the more symbols that you crowd a cover with the less any one of them has a chance to grab the attention of somebody scrolling on amazon you might have been able to get away with a more complex cover back in the day it's kind of like back when people bought records right part of the experience of the album was buying this giant piece of artwork that you'd stare at while the record was playing on the record machine and now you got this tiny little thumbnail on Spotify. <laughs> so right. uh, the design technique has changed in a lot of the same ways for albums and it's the same thing. You have to really simplify, really pare down and really decide what's the most important element. And speaking of that, cause there's kind of two big approaches with covers. There's more, but the two big ones are like a strong symbol or image of somebody and then a more typographical cover. So how do you know when to go typography? Because I feel like most authors want the strong symbol, even though the strong typography often works better. I don't know if there's a specific formula for that sort of thing. Like I just did a a book cover for Enclave where I didn't have an opportunity to read the book, but they send me their marketing materials, AMSI, I think is what it's called. And it essentially gives a synopsis. And then one of the questions is, are there symbols that, could work for the book, strong elements in the story. And in this particular book, there is a chalice that it was a dream and there was a chalice full of poison. When I read that, it was like, "Eh, you know what, that would work great. And they also gave me like specific scenes that they thought could work and environments and that sort of thing. But I really was drawn like immediately to the chalice idea with the poison in it. So I worked around that. So, you know, in some books, it's about putting a character on the cover. I did a series for Morgan Busey, uh, Mark of the Raven. And that was all about this assassin woman, which sounded fantastic when I read about that. And so I knew I wanted to put her on the covers. She had two swords and it was like, oh, that could look really tough. So yeah, there's not a specific formula, but it's intuitive. You know, what image comes to my brain when I'm reading about the story? 
sometimes it's best to have either an element or sometimes it's best to have a person on it. And then there's an argument to be made that you don't want to have the face of the person on the cover so that the reader can make it in their head. And I don't disagree with that. I disagree with that. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk through the pros and cons. So in web design, which is my background, they do a lot of heat map tracking where they track where the eyes are and then they put heat on the web web page. And you can direct people's eyes to certain parts of the web page. And one of the best ways to do it is with a face. So the classic example is the baby looking at the camera. All the heat is on the baby. The baby looking at a headline. All the heat is on the headline. But if you are looking at the back of the baby's head, you lose all of that heat. <laughs> so yes, it takes away some of the imagination. So I understand the artistic side of it. But the designer in me is like, no, that's a powerful tool that you can use to direct the attention of the reader or grab the attention of the reader while they're scrolling past. Yeah, no, it's true. If you see a face, your eye goes directly to it. But then again, there's the argument where people will say, well, when I read a book, I want to make up this character. I've done plenty of covers both directions. I don't know which is best. Again, it's always about the mood for me, the atmosphere. Yeah, well, and that's one of the interesting things about design is that there's no one right design. And even if there was a right design, that design would get tired, right? Like the dummies design works really well, but it works really well for a dummies book, right? You couldn't copy right. the bright yellow cover and put it on your fantasy story, <laughs> you know, conquering the galaxy for dummies. Although actually maybe you could, although that would be a, a trademark violation. So it's one of the interesting things about book cover design is how varied you can have very different covers that are both really good and maybe even for the same book. So Mistborn, keep going back to that. It's had three covers, the original cover. It's not very good. And then it's got two. It's like you got one set of covers for like the ebook and another set of covers for the audiobook. And they're both really good and they're both really different. And they're both different from the original. So how do you know when you're looking at a cover, you're like, man, I really like that cover. Yeah, ultimately, I think it comes down to the emotional response that the viewer gets from looking at it in Everyone's different. Some other people might love those Mistborn covers that you hate. So it's a hard call. You can <laughs> So that's like food or anything else. Some people love spicy food and some people hate it. And you just never know what's going to go. So there, again, there's no magic formula. I know what I'm drawn to and that's, that's really all. And I think it goes back to what you said at the beginning. You're talking about research and you're kind of apologetic, but research is a key part of design because the bait has to fit the fish, right? You know, that glistening abs cover is going <laughs> to attract a certain kind of reader, whereas the knight in armor holding his sword is going to attract a different kind of reader. And while some readers may be attracted to both covers, there's also a lot of readers that are mutually excluded, which is why that research is so important. Because when you are designing a cover and you're making these design choices, you're picking readers that will be turned on or turned off because of those design choices that you're making. Yeah, absolutely. Book cover design is different from traditional art. I've heard it said that art is about beauty. It's about getting people to ask questions, whereas design is about getting people to take action. So something I've said in the past on the podcast that uh, a book cover is more like a box of Captain Crunch than it is like the Mona Lisa. And I know that, <laughs> I, and I don't mean to offend you <laughs> by saying that, 
But but really, that box of Captain Crunch is designed and it's put at knee level for the parents, right? Why is Captain Crunch at knee level for the parents? Because that whole design is targeted not at the parents because they're not going to eat the Captain Crunch, but it's designed <laughs> at the kids who are like, sugar! And they can grab it <laughs> off and they put it in and there's a fight in the cereal aisle. Not that I would know anything about this as a parent of young child. So you, I feel like you, you have a foot in each camp because you're a traditionally trained artist. You, you went to school and you were trained in art, but you've been working as a designer. So how do you navigate that tension between art and design? It's a good question. Actually, in art school, I was an illustration major. And in art school, there was this chasm between the fine artists and the illustrators. The illustrators, we were there because we love art and we want to make a living at it. The fine artists were there because they love art and it's none of your business what they do. They just wanted to please themselves. and They wanted to starve. (laughs) Essentially. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, ultimately, a book cover is not for me. It's not about making me happy. It's about, and it's really, it shouldn't be about making the author happy either or the publisher. It should be about getting the person who's a prospective buyer to pick it up and either look at the back cover and read what the book is about, or if you're online to read the synopsis there. And and that goes back to the whole thing where you have a committee where they're trying to decide which cover to go with and they pick the one you don't like. You just have to, well, you know, it's not my book. It's not for me. It's ultimately for them. They're paying me. So hopefully it'll do its job and get the prospective reader to buy it ultimately. I'll tell you how I navigate those meetings because Typically, the book isn't for the people in the meeting room, right? It's for teenage boys or it's for some demographic that's not well represented in the room. And so what I encourage them to do is to do a split test on Facebook where they buy Facebook ads targeting the same audience. They try to make the audience fit the target readership as closely as possible. And they put all the covers against each other. And they just link to like a pre-order page, right? It doesn't really matter where the link goes. All you're tracking is the click-through rate, right? Because then you can show, oh, this cover that I like, that I designed, got twice as many clicks in the noisy, chaotic environment of Facebook than this cover that you liked. And you move the decision from the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion, to the data. Because otherwise, it's that VP of marketing is always going to, and as somebody who was that guy, <laughs> um, you know, it's like, it's nice to have that power, but it's important to realize that just because I like the cover doesn't mean that the target reader is going to like the cover. So giving them a voice by doing ads and doing a split test with Facebook ads, 50 bucks, it's a hundred bucks. It's not a lot of money to be able to test the cover on tens of thousands of potential readers. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Uh, so let's talk about genre fit. How do you research? Because there's the big genres, obviously, fantasy and sci-fi, but that's really leading because there is no fantasy genre. There are the fantasy genres and sci-fi, mm-hmm. right? A military sci-fi is going to be very different from a space opera because that's one of the most important things you said earlier to match the genre, right? You want to match that micro genre. How do you get a cover to communicate the correct genre? Well, hopefully if you're doing something like, like a weaponized mech, it will tell you immediately, you know, this is military <laughs> sci-fi. I mean, there's some things and it could be cliche, I guess. If you put a guy with a cape on there, you kind of get a different feel for it. Cliché sounds like a bad thing, but it's really not in that it's going to immediately tell someone, if there's a mech on the cover, I know what I'm going to get. Starship Trooper, you know, something in that direction. People are not going to the bookstore looking for something novel. 
this is really hard to grasp as an author. They're not going to the section of the bookstore they've never been before to buy a book they've never heard of. They want books that are like the books that they already like. <laughs> and so the cover has to be like the books that they already like. And often it's like, no, this is too similar to Starship Troopers. Like, no, that's what you want because <laughs> you want the fans of Starship Troopers to be like, yes, I love Starship Troopers. I love a political dialogue wrapped in military science fiction. So you know, I, like I said, I worked in web design for a long time. And one of the big challenges I felt between a good website and a bad design website was unclear feedback from the client where often they would say, I want this to be more simple and I want it to be more elegant. And you're like, those are opposite things. <laughs> so yeah. what, so this is your chance to talk to future clients, right? That are trying to give you feedback. They're trying to navigate their emotions and cause you both want the same thing. The cover designer, the, the web designer, they're not your enemy. They want it to be a good effective cover just like you do. How can somebody give more useful feedback and also know when to listen, because the thing is, you're getting, this is one of the m most frustrating jobs being a designer, because you're getting feedback from somebody who's not a trained designer, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a plumber getting advice from somebody who doesn't know anything about plumbing. So how can somebody give you useful advice on a book cover? If they have a good reason for not wanting something, then I need to be humble enough to listen and find out exactly what don't you like. And on the same side, maybe they need some humility too. And to know that this isn't what they do for a living. So yeah, it's just, it's, there's trust on both sides of it, but it does require humility and communication on both sides. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm a little bit thin skinned, so <laughs> I can get uptight with clients fairly easily. And it's important for me to just, okay, don't reply back right away. And I've made that mistake so many times. Just sit on it, think about it. And okay, what is it that they don't like? And is it, are they right? And at least give it a shot and see, because often it's like my immediate response is, no, that's going to suck. I don't want to do that. And I've in the past, especially with big publishers where I just have to do it anyway, I ended up like, oh, well, darn it, they were right. <laughs> so yeah, there, it's just humility on both ends. Yeah, one of the things I found really helpful back when I was doing website design is that we wouldn't send the designs to the client right away. We insisted on the initial presentation of the design being live on video where we could explain the reasons for why we made the decisions. And web design is more technical and intricate, but it helped us to explain why we made the decisions that we had. And that would often cause the clients to give reasons for why they didn't like those decisions or why they did like, because I don't like it is the least helpful feedback, right? It's like, that doesn't send me in any kind of direction. And so it's like, well, why don't you like it, right? And you can kind of dig. And often you have to ask why five or six times until you get to that core reason behind the reason. And, and also I find that they respect your design decisions more when they hear that rationale that went into it. It's like, here's mm -hmm. why I picked a you know, mech and power armor, because it is similar to these other books and it ties in with the scene of your book or what have you. And it gets less personal, right? It's like, I don't like it. You're a terrible designer. It's like, <laughs> so you can't go anywhere from there, right? <laughs> right, right. What you said earlier about how you have your Facebook ads, put it in front of a bunch of eyes. Don't try and sway them to what you want, but try and get honest feedback. I think that's a great way to do it. Instead of having whoever the high paid VP is by himself make these choices. I think that's a great idea. I think that could be a problem too, that if your people that you're asking are just trying to please you, they're like, well, what does he want me to hear? 
And then that's what the kind of feedback I'll give, but it's something like Facebook where it, it's, you don't know these people. I think that's a, it's a great way to do it. Those are your customers. And it's way better than asking for advice. When you send a cover to a friend, they stare at it for 30 seconds and they surrender to it. Like it's a piece of art <laughs> and the experience <laughs> that they have with the cover is completely unlike the mm-hmm. experience that a customer would have with the cover. And so you end up getting really distorted feedback, right? They're the person sitting with the vinyl LP, staring at the cover and finding all the intricate details. And what you really want is to capture that scrolling past 500 books on Amazon until the one cover jumps out at you, which is what the split testing on Facebook is more similar to. Because in this case, all the noise on Facebook actually helps you <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's creating that chaotic environment. Absolutely. So what mistakes do you see authors make when they're getting a book cover? Probably that it is too personal, it's too important to them, and that they won't listen to advice because of it. And that is really the big thing with working with, especially first-time indies. It's just so important that they don't let go, they don't trust. But I guess probably the biggest problem with indies is when they design their own covers. I think that is just, I don't think that's a good choice. And I have seen it done well, so it can be done with someone who has the right sensibilities. But it's like, I wouldn't write a book because I'm not a writer and I wouldn't try and edit someone's book. But if you're not an artist, you don't have those sensibilities, don't design your own cover because it shows. Because book cover design is marketing. It's marketing art. It's not fine art. I mean, it can be, but ultimately it's a piece of marketing. So if you're a great painter, don't, don't necessarily assume that you're going to be a good book cover designer. That's one of the most important things that we've said today. <laughs> and, and I'm almost sad that you're like, there was the one indie who did a, a good cover. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> I've been in this business for 10, 15 years and more people win the lottery than with no skill <laughs> design a good cover that works. Because the thing is, a lot of people can make a pretty cover and there are cover builders and you can make a, a pretty cover, but to have a cover that works is another thing entirely. And by works, I mean, it's got to get the clicks. It's got to pique that curiosity of the customer. And this is not something to skimp on. And I'm saying this as somebody who doesn't sell book covers. I'm not in this business. I just see the effect. Because let's say you want to advertise your book. You want to buy Amazon ads for your book. You want to buy Facebook ads for your book. If the cover doesn't work, you find out really fast because the ads get really expensive. And then suddenly that cheap cover got way more expensive because now you still have to buy the expensive cover. I remember somebody coming to me for a website and they're like, we just spent $1,500 on a website from this other company and it's terrible. And we're wondering if you could give us a discount on a website from you. And I was like, no, (laughs) we still have to do all the work. I'm really sorry that you had that bad experience, but that doesn't save you money. There's no transfer credit unless you (laughs) get them to send us some of the money from the project. And that's hard to hear. Sometimes it's better to do it right than to do it twice. Yep. That goes with a lot of things in life. (laughs) This is your chance to debunk a myth that they're believing that keeps them away from having a good cover. What's a myth you want to debunk? Hmm. Going off something you said about having a pretty cover versus a cover that's going to sell. It can be beautiful and it might drive readers, but what is it that is actually going to sell? What sells in the market? And going back to the other thing I said about sometimes it's just hitting those genre buttons and maybe being a little bit cliche 
So ultimately, the myth that you want to debunk is don't tell the story. Like, it's not my responsibility as a designer to tell your story. It just set the atmosphere, man. Just let them know what the genre is. Give me a, maybe a specific character. Something like between 50 and 80%. Some, and for some authors, it's as much as 100% of their books are purchased through Amazon, which mm. means they never see the full-size cover until after they've made the purchase decision. And if they're buying it on a black and white Kindle, they never see the full-size cover. Like, it's got to work as a thumbnail. And that's hard to hear, but you really have to pare down. And back when I did a lot of consulting with authors, they would come to me. They, often they have a book that wasn't selling. And often we would rework the cover. I wouldn't do it, but I'd work with the designer and I'd act as an intermediary. And in every instance, it was about reducing the complexity of the cover, taking the symbols off. And so I have to be the kind of therapist to be like, okay, which of these is the most resonant symbol? <laughs> we'll cut everything else out. And that allows that symbol to be bigger, which then makes it work on a thumbnail. So we're talking about symbols. And obviously there's the guy with the sword or whatever the major symbol is. But sometimes there's a time to also add a trust symbol to the cover, like a bestseller badge or an award winner or some sort of like third-party validation. Now, I know often that comes like on a second edition or a, a reprint because you don't know if a book's going to be a number one New York Times bestseller when you print it. And I know often that's often added as a sticker in the factory where this some poor intern is stickering the book, so they're using a machine to do it. But when do you work that trust symbol into the cover design itself? When does that make sense? And which kinds of trust symbols do you see resonate well with readers? Yeah, anything that's going to give the book credibility, because again, it's marketing. You want someone to know that this is a good book. It's not just a piece of art. What you said about the person with the sticker, that drives me nuts. There's they always put the sticker right on your favorite part of the cover. <laughs> oh, man. Well, there's one publisher in particular who they have their in-house production person. And when they want to add something or subtract something from a cover, this person does it. So I'll see the book on the bookshelf. And it's like, no, I'm like, I'm not going to charge anything extra. Please let me do it. At this point, the book means something to me. This is one of the interesting things about a book cover because it is somewhat malleable. So while the text of a book may not change very much, maybe you fix some typos here and there, it's not uncommon for the cover to change quite a bit, right? You, every publisher that has a book that's the number one New York Times bestseller, they're going to edit that cover and put that on the cover somewhere, right? Maybe it's Absolutely. a sticker. Maybe it's just a piece of text, right? Because it really does make a difference. It's not just a patting yourself on the back. There's a lot of readers that put a lot of stock in the fact that this is a Nobel Prize winning book or it won a Pulitzer or whatever the prestigious award is. Yeah, that's so important. Like the Christie Award, which is actually a beautiful emblem. I'm happy to put that onto a cover to work that in somehow. And it can be difficult because obviously you didn't design the cover with that in mind. So I would hope they would come to me to do that. But yeah, as far as adding best-selling New York Times or Wall Street Journal, whatever, that stuff is super important. And even things like a line that kind of, I actually did this for an indie author recently where the cover didn't say enough. So I actually added a subtitle to it and he went with it, which was great, but just something that kind of adds to it. So I have no problem adding text, additional text to a cover if it's going to sell. Again, it's not a piece of art. This is marketing. And if you, whatever text you can put on there, that's going to give the book credibility, go for it. Yeah. And let's talk about the back cover real quick. Cause when you design a cover, you're designing the front and the back, obviously the front gets the more attention, but the back tends to have a lot more text on it. 
Do you like it when an author comes with a back cover copy ready to go so you can work it in? Because I know oftentimes it's lorem ipsum placeholder text, and then they're trying to make the copy fit the back cover. And I see this with indies very often. They're like, oh, just shrink the font size. And that's <laughs> one real easy way to tell an indie book cover is that the text on the back of the book is too small and too low contrast. So what advice do you have for that back part of the book? I did a presentation a couple of years ago at Realm Makers, and I brought that into it because back covers are important. And for some reason, a lot of indies don't think they are. And you like they'll put the energy into the front cover, which is the most important. But then you look at the back cover, and then all of a sudden, credibility is lost. Ultimately, it just has to look professional. It needs a barcode. If it doesn't have a barcode, it's <laughs> indie for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. Or they have their own logo for their publishing house that looks horrible. You see that a lot. I'd say, I'd almost say don't use the logo at all. You don't necessarily need it, but if you're going to use one, make sure that your publishing house logo looks professional. Uh, but I think back covers are super important to add credibility. And then in that's my goal for a physical book for the person to look at the cover and then turn it over and don't lose them there. I mean, you've got the most important part. They've turned it over. So now keep them. And I don't, obviously I don't write the back cover copy, but that's pretty important. I've worked with publishers where it seems like they overdo it. They put too much text on the back cover. You got to have a good balance. I'd say not a lot of text, maybe a paragraph, maybe two with a good headline. We're talking about fiction here. A headline, maybe a couple paragraphs. If you could get an endorsement, that gives more credibility. And then maybe have your bio on the back cover. Maybe not. I'm not strong either, either way on that. Yeah. Just because somebody gave you a two paragraph endorsement, that doesn't mean you put all two paragraphs of the endorsement on the back of the book. The best endorsement of any book that I've ever read is C.S. Lewis's endorsement for Lord of the Rings that's been on Lord of the Rings covers for 70 years. He said, here are beauties which pierce like swords or burn like cold iron. Here's a book which will break your heart. And that's Whoa. it. <laughs> and then it's C.S. Lewis. And if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, at that point you say, shut up and take my money. <laughs> right? right. You, you don't know anything about Lord of the Rings, but you're like, man, C.S. Lewis says that this is, says this, that I'm going to buy this book. Right? And of course, we know uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are friends, and that's where endorsements come from. They come from friendships because we're talking about getting that endorsement really early. If you're going to work that endorsement into the cover, this is 10 months, 12 months before the book is published. And so, and we have a whole episode on how to get endorsements. We also have a whole episode on that cover copy. All of these pieces work together. Yeah, and often less is more. I said two paragraphs. One paragraph is good too. But what you said about cutting down the endorsement, yes. You just have like maybe a sentence and you just have some important words in there, you know, stunning, wonderful, blah, 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 whatever, <laughs> but don't have a huge long endorsement. We should at least mention nonfiction. <laughs> so I know your primary focus is fiction book covers, but how are fiction book covers and nonfiction book covers different? When I first started, all I got was nonfiction. So I was known as a nonfiction guy. And I wanted to be the fiction guy. So on my website, I would slowly get rid of the nonfiction stuff and only put fiction so that I'd be known as the fiction guy. And I don't dislike nonfiction. I just did so much of it. The, what's the difference? Usually about being clever, depending on what the book is about. It's so simple. Like I did a book one time. 
I'm trying to remember the title, but I only put one little graphic on it and it was a stoplight and all three lights were red and it was just, <laughs> it was so easy to do, but I, man, it's killing me. I can't remember the title, but apparently that was, that's what it needed. And it, the book did really well. As far as on a design side, nonfiction is generally a lot easier. I put so many more hours into fiction, but I enjoy it more. You got to earn the right to draw that dragon. <laughs> so. Yeah. I want to say f the font is super important, which it is with fiction as well, but I'd say it's even more important with nonfiction to get that feel across, depending on what specifically the book is about. I would not necessarily recommend going to just any designer to do a nonfiction cover. They have to show that they have a marketing mind. Definitely look at their portfolio and see if it fits for your book. No matter how genius someone is at fiction, they may not have that marketing mind for the nonfiction. Because the real trick to nonfiction is finding that metaphor from yes. this nonfiction book that would make for a good cover. Because that's the challenge with nonfiction. With fiction, it's easy, right? It's a book about dragons. What do you put on the cover? You put a big, scary dragon, right? Like what right. now making that dragon attractive, that's where the skill comes in. But deciding on the dragon is easier. Whereas a book about leadership, if you're tempted to put two people shaking hands in front of a conference room, you've got the wrong image, right? You need a better, <laughs> you need a better metaphor. It can't be too tired and, and too cliche. And it does require a marketing mind to find that metaphor. And I would encourage you, for those of you writing nonfiction, go through your book and think about the strongest metaphors that you use in various mm -hmm. chapters and put those on a silver platter for your designer and do that work for them, but also find a designer who knows how to look for that. Cause it may be, there's another metaphor from your book or have an adjacent metaphor. It's not an explicit one that you have in your book, but like stoplight with the three red lights, right? If it's about overcoming obstacles, what a great way to capture that feeling of being trapped in your problems. And this nonfiction book will help you past your problems. I mean, mm -hmm. it's such a strong symbol. It could work for many nonfiction books <laughs> that are about getting past something that's stopping you. Right. Yeah. So nonfiction is even more about simplicity. I mean, bam, you know, immediately what it's going to help you with. Yeah. One of my favorite nonfiction books is Made to Stick. It's all about persuasion and communication. And the cover is just a piece of duct tape yep. <laughs> on, a, on a really simple background. And that's all it needs, right? The, the duct tape is a metaphor for the concept of being sticky and that all the rest of the sales is being done by the text. And so the text really sells it more for nonfiction, whereas for fiction, it's more like a movie poster where you're really selling the aesthetic and the genre and the feel and the rest of it. So for people who are wanting to browse your book covers or find out more about you, where can they find you? I have two websites. I have Dog-Eared Design, and that's geared more towards the design side. Dog-Eared Design, like books get dog-eared. And then I have FictionArtist.com, and that's more geared towards my illustration work. And that was more for publishers who are looking specifically for illustrators instead of the whole package, because publishers often hire illustrators and then design it in-house. It's not that common where they hire someone to do everything, the design and the illustration. So anyway, fictionartist.com for the illustration side, dog ear design for the design side. Well, Kirk DuPonts, thank you so much for joining us on the Novel Marketing Podcast. I'll have a links to both fictionartist.com and dogeareddesign.com. Our sponsor today is the Book Launch Blueprint. If you Google how to launch a book, you'll get over 500 million hits. I'm not kidding. That's a problem. Why? Because 
how do you know which of those websites have good advice and which don't? You can't afford to spend your time and money on programs that are little more than wishful thinking. So what does the Book Launch Blueprint do? It takes you through a 28-day course where I and Christy Hall of Fame author James L. Rubart walk you through the process of launching a book. We teach you everything from start to finish. We don't teach you how to have a good cover. We assume that the book is good and the cover is good, but we take it from there and teach you how to launch your book. We only do this course once a year. And for those of you listening in the year 2022, registration closes on April 8th. And you can find out more at booklaunch.fun. Our featured patron today is Derek Dopner, author of Why Authors Fail. Becoming a massively successful self-published author can be challenging. Even just one missing link and an otherwise perfect plan can kill your results. In Why Authors Fail, award-winning author Derek Dupner reveals 17 biggest mistakes authors make that sabotage their success, along with practical steps to fix each mistake. So Derek, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for supporting the show, helping keep it on the air. And if you would like to become a patron, you can find out more at authormedia.com slash patron. And if you can't afford to become a patron, but still want to support the show, you can just share this episode with one writer you think would find it helpful. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler. The producer is Lori Christine, and I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. To find the blog post version of this episode, visit authormedia.com slash 319. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.